the gearing involves your tax benefits and what you're getting back and that's what I associate with the word geared. So I would consider that positive geared, positive cash flow by the highest quality of property that you can afford, afford any negative gearing as well as afford to still be able to save money and accumulate deposits and live your life. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management, sales and buyers agency servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today we've got a Q&A where I'm giving you my opinion on lots of the questions being asked in our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. If you're not already a member, make sure you head over and join in the discussions. Let's get into the questions, shall we? First one, if you're evicting a tenant and there's money owing after the bond, which is the best way to retrieve the money? So, unfortunately, this does happen more often than you think because even a good tenant when they go to vacate they can have some cleaning they can have some other minor things that are needed they if they're hard up with their money they might have been um, saving up their bond money and rent to pay their next rental property they might have had a change of circumstances in their job or other things going on they might be moving back overseas so all of this can go into a mixing bowl to have what has been a good tenant potentially throughout the tenancy end up being owing a fair bit of money when they leave. So in this case, it sounds like the money owing is going to be over and above the bond. So I'd suggest that you first try to get your property manager to have the tenant pay the money. And that is a quick you know, discussion and outline everything that is owing, itemized. And if if there's certain things that are damaged or referenced in the final bond inspection, you can attach the final bond inspection and draw specific reference to those things so that it's all clearly outlined that these things are owing. And most tenants will know when they haven't left things as well as they should or if they've damaged something and they'll be expecting that they'll have to pay for it. Some tenants will then refuse or not agree with certain items, which you can look to negotiate and look deeper to see if whether they have any merit in what they're saying. But once you sort of arrive at a definitive list of costs, then you can look to make an insurance claim. And that's why it's so important to have landlords protection insurance because it's going to cover loss of rent. It's going to cover, you know, other things, damage potentially. And different landlord insurers cover different things. So some of the good ones that are worth checking out that we, from our experience, see are very good with claims is Terry Shear or EBM. Of course, I'm not uh, suggesting or recommending insurance, but um, so make your own inquiries on that front. But When it comes to having your insurance, it's there for a very good reason and it's very minimal in cost compared to how much it can save you when you need it. 
So once you've made your claim, usually you can get an outcome fairly quickly within a couple of weeks. Depends on how much over and above the bond the amount is. If it's only a small amount over and above the bond, you look at how much you get back from your insurance claim. You look at what what the gap is. Is that going to be worth taking to court? You've got to weigh up. Usually the cost to apply to court is around $45 from memory and your property manager's time to take it there. And it may get resolved at any point once the court application is actually made. Your tenant might get in touch and, and agree to make payments or you could look to negotiate and enter into you know, a bit of a payment plan for them to get back on top of things over the next month or two. So the, if it's a large amount that is over and above the bond, you've made your insurance claim, you can also include uh, the excess that you've had to pay in for your insurance claim and you can cl- include that in your claim f- to the court. And if you've received money back from the insurance claim, you can't claim to recover that money from the tenant in the court claim either. So you've got to take that off. Now, of course, if you apply to the court before getting the outcome of your insurance claim, you can always adjust it later and reduce the amount that you're claiming later if you end up getting more of that back from insurance. And once you apply to court, normally you may have to go in and have it uh, heard by a magistrate, but the registrar often is the one that uh, will try to mediate things before you actually get a court date and have it heard by the magistrate. So the tenant may or may not turn up. If they don't turn up, then it's automatically awarded to you. They do turn up, you present your different evidence. Your property manager should be handling all of this for you, try to make the whole thing easy for you. Once you get an outcome from the court and a court order, you can then, that's going to affect the, the tenant's history and show up when they're applying for loans potentially. You can lodge that outcome on the National Tenancy Database and all of us property managers search that when we're looking to you know, reference check a tenant. So if we get a hit on there that shows that they owe money and there's a court order, that'll pretty much blacklist them on getting any other rental property. And this is why uh, a lot of private landlords miss doing these steps and miss you know, finding these things. So the other thing you can do once you have a court order, and especially if the amount's a lot higher, if you've already tried tracking down the tenant and they're not communicating with you, you could um, appoint a debt collector who usually would take a portion of the funds that they recover. So it can be worth doing if the amount's really high, but I'll typically say that they might take 30% of the funds they're recovering. So it's quite a large amount, but still could be worth considering to get some of the money back instead of you know being out of pocket for all of it. And normally, a tenant will never get that far down the road. It's very, very rare. And we're trying to come to an agreement and get the payment made as early as possible in this process. So it's very rare that they'll decide to make no payment at all. And usually that's when they're often leaving the country and they don't care about their uh, you know, tenant history and they're just out of there with um, no real way to contact them and no, not much of a recourse. So that's where recovery is very difficult to impossible. So 
keep in mind that this is such a small percent of tenancies out of our, you know, we've managed 950-odd properties. We'd have to go to court only a few times per year across um, our nine-odd managers. So if things are managed well, if you've got a solid property condition report, if you present your final bond inspection in a way that's understandable, if you look to negotiate and come up with you know, payment plans, if you make them aware of the consequences at each point, then they're going to be much more inclined to work with you and pay what's owing. So hopefully you don't find yourself on that boat, but if not, hopefully you've got a good property manager to handle things. Now, I've got another question, which is along the same line, and I thought I'd throw it in here too while I was tackling um, this because someone else is asking, what is everyone's experience in court with the tenant? Our tenant has broken lease as he was at government housing. We agreed to waive all fees except an extra week's rent. There was additional cleaning which needed to be done at the final, final inspection, which he was told about. Now he's refusing to sign the bond paperwork with those items on it because he wants his whole bond back. We've been good to him over the years and given he was fully aware of the rents and cleaning and the fees we've waived as goodwill, I'm a bit peeved. And yes, that is very disappointing. Sounds like you've been more than fair on what you're seeking from the tenant. And if you're only seeking one week, uh, week's rent and some cleaning, it sounds like it may be less than the full bond that you're holding uh, with the the bonds admin so the full bonds usually four weeks rent and if that's the case you i would suggest you then apply to the court with a form six which means the actual amount that you're applying for doesn't exceed the bond and if the tenant doesn't respond to the court notice and write back with their reasons why they don't agree in the required time frame the bond would then just be automatically released to you and that wouldn't involve any court time at all. So I would do that as a first uh, step. You know, experience in these scenarios, a lot of the majority of tenants will not uh, refute it and the bond will just be automatically released to the owner. But it does come down to the individuals and how firmly they may believe they've got a case. Um, and it sounds like in this case, it's pretty straightforward and all in your favour. So I would be getting your property manager to lodge that Form 6 and requesting that it be disposed of to, to you. Now, next question. Is there an accurate and user-friendly software or app for property investment calculations? Now, I've not seen too many of these and it's a bit frustrating that the landscape doesn't have more easy-to-use free calculators. The ones I have seen, uh, Suburbs Finder has some good calculators and that's part of their monthly subscription and along with that you get access to suburb intelligence reports and lots of real handy data and we've got that access to that ourselves. Can't remember the price but it's pretty reasonable. I think it's sort of 50 to 70 odd dollars a month. Other option is there's a property investment calculator tool called Property Investment Analysis or PIA. And it's been around for decades. Jan Summers made it with her partner, I believe, back in the 90s. And I do have a copy of PIA. It's something that's very old school. used to come on CD-ROM and I think now these days you get it as a download. It, it 
gets installed on your actual computer and it's pretty powerful with what is possible in there but still when you go and want to start calculating out and building portfolios and running lots of different scenarios that's why when we're creating a strategic plan for someone we use game plans and their license fees are pretty expensive um, worth the cost but it's $2,200 at present for a license fee for game plans and and that doesn't include the actual creation of a strategic portfolio plan. So when someone does come and get overall strategic plan with us, we include the license fee and what we charge and we're only a bit more than than that. So worth if you want to plan out beyond just that individual property and look at leveraging our experience for how to put your properties together in the most optimum way to reach your goals, then get in touch on through our property investment uh, page on our website. Website. Next question. Hi, looking to buy an investment property with cash flow within 20 kilometers to the CBD, considering building as land seems to be more available, but worried about building wait times. Has anyone used a modular home builder before and found this to be a good solution for current building issues? So I wanted to throw this in to provide my quick two cents on this. So I'm not aware of any uh, modular builder in Perth that has a you know great reputation that has been around and is proven. And just when you sort of start seeing some builders doing it, they have disappeared just as quickly i'd be re- i think it's really risky to look at going with this type of build at the moment i mean it'd be great if they were proven they the cost was significantly less and they could do it in you know much quicker time but it's just as far as i'm aware in the landscape there isn't anyone that ticks those boxes and it's hard enough for existing builders at the moment that do everything mains doing things mainstream you know and a lot of them are under financial pressure and potentially a lot of them have you know closed and gone into receivership so i'd be pretty worried about putting my money with a modular home builder and if anyone does know of builders in this space that's used them personally reach out and let us know because i'll touch on it in a future episode again and when it comes to the actual prospect of building, there's not much land around. I'm not sure where they're seeing this land. Certainly, I'm not sure where they're seeing it within 20 kilometers to the CBD. If there's lots of land around wherever they're looking, then I'd also be concerned about potentially buying there because the extra land's going to keep prices suppressed. I'm trying to think where they might be looking, potentially east to maybe Brabham or Swan Valley. Certain areas out there have become a lot more built up over the recent years, but uh, yeah, you need to look at exactly what else is around it and what land supply there could be that comes on. And the other thing to think about is not just the cash flow that you might make if you can, from the modular products that I've seen in the past, they haven't actually been that much lower in cost and the main benefit's actually just been in time saving. So I'd be even more concerned if it's not significantly less in price when you ever come to resell that property you're probably going to have a lot of issues with perception of buyers you know everyone's just 
hard and fast on uh, loving double brick and tile or double brick brick and colour bond over here. So if you're looking at a modular house, I think you're really going to have to be wanting to get a significantly less price because the market's going to want to pay much less when and if you come to resell. And you might say, okay, well, you're not planning to resell. But situations change. There's many reasons that people need to sell at certain points. Never say never. What you're talking about here is the surety of the money of that asset value and the money that you're putting in. And for that reason alone, even if I could do it, you know, I'd only ever make it a very small part of my overall portfolio. Certainly wouldn't be putting all my eggs in that one basket if I was just starting out. So it's at the moment with the market going up, it's, you know, too easy to make money on buying an established property and not have all of these risks involved. So that's what I'd be sticking to. Hope that helps. Next question. When an investment property's rental income covers your mortgage interest repayment, is that considered a positive cash flow property? Or what about your other costs such as land rates? Well, I think I mean land tax, uh, council rates, water, service charges, property management expenses, other maintenance expenses, and what would make all investment properties negative cash flow? So now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm happy to be corrected on this. But the ways that I think about it is that a property's positive cash flow, when you've taken into account all the income that you get on the property, which is usually just the rent, and all the expenses that are on the property. And those expenses will be, you know, your loan interest plus all those other things that I just mentioned. And if there's more income than there is expenses, then that's positive cash flow. And I look at that positive cash flow as being a pre-tax thing. If after tax, once you've claimed depreciation and you've claimed any other, you know, negative gearing, if there's a shortfall, if the depreciation is significantly high enough on a new property with lots of fixtures and fittings and new building, then the property could then give you, you know, be not costing you any money after tax. It could be putting money in your pocket after tax. And in that case, I would call that positively geared. So the gearing involves uh, your tax benefits and what you're getting back. And that's what I associate with the word geared. So I would consider that positive geared in the first case, positive cash flow if before tax it if the income exceeds all expenses, then what is negatively geared? Well, negatively geared is after you claim and work out all your different tax deductions and, you know, it would be the property would be costing you money to hold and you're getting back a deduction from that loss that you're making that you can offset against your actual income that you've got us in other areas that negative geared is you know saving you tax on the income that you would have otherwise had to pay it on so let's say your negative gearing benefit is $30,000 that's that would be deducted against your income 
And if your marginal tax rate is 30 cents in the dollar, that means the real sort of saving to you would be 30 cents out of 30 grand. Working that out is about nine grand. So the actual after tax saving from that negative gearing would be nine grand from an actual loss of 30 grand. So it means that you're still losing money, means that you're losing 21K in that situation. When you're on a higher tax bracket, it's going to mean that you'll save more money on tax because let's say you're on 47 cents in the dollar. That means out of the 30,000 that you're deducting you know, against, you'd save, you would uh, not pay tax on 14,000 worth and means that you're still losing 16,000. So... At the end of the day, it still means that you're losing money. It helps with your you to actually hold the property. We probably can't count on negative gearing being around forever because at different times in the past, we know Labor's looked to remove it. And it's been removed in certain other countries around the world. The US, I know, doesn't have negative gearing as an option anymore. So a nice bonus to have, don't buy a property because of it and don't necessarily count on it because it could change at any time. Looks like it's here to stay for a while though because it was a big contentious issue when Labor were looking to abolish it and it really affected them winning that last election and uh, they've since gone very quiet on it. <laughs> so next question. Hi, some say quality over quantity but some don't believe in negative gearing properties. What would be a good decision to buy an investment property currently in Perth in the 900 to $1.2 million price point with a 20% deposit? If no, then what deposit would be better to buy in that price point or is it better choice to stick to lower price properties? Finance, not an issue, thanks. Now, the reason I wanted to touch on this is it's a classic case of focusing on just that property, but not focusing on your overall plan and situation and developing a strategy from knowing those things. So for me, having a strategic plan is just so important because it makes these decisions on the property purchase price so much clearer because when you've got a plan, you know the kind of growth that level that you're targeting and the kind of rental yield that you're targeting. And at 900 to 1.2 mil, you're probably going to get a 35 to 4% rental yield. For a lot of people, that's going to be very difficult to hold. I haven't mentioned how much savings or surplus that they have each month. My general advice is to buy the highest quality of property that you can afford. And when we say afford, that is afford any negative gearing that I've just touched on, as well as afford to still be able to save money and you know accumulate deposits and live your life. And that's why when I come to create these plans for people, I'm looking through to what sort of purchase price is going to be ideal to you know get as much growth as we can, but be affordable for that person to be able to hold, to be able to save, to be able to live their life. But again, get in touch if you want an overall strategic plan for getting clarity on the most optimum way to do it for you. Now, next question. This might be a silly question, but I'm 
might be, I think they're saying, I'm new to this market. How do you gauge what offer to make, i.e. block size, house size, extras? Also, if pay cash, how much benefit could it be? I know it's a roundabout question, but wanting to put an offer in, going for second viewing tonight, so trying to lock in a figure, any guidance would be greatly appreciated. Now, it really comes down to doing a comparative market analysis, looking at how that specific property compares to others, need to look at properties for sale, sold and under offer if you can uh, find out the prices of all of those things. Um, I've recorded an in-depth episode, uh, which we'll put in the show notes for how to price a property accurately, which would be you know, a much more expanded version on how to do this. We're not so much looking at what the asking price is, we're looking through to what the true and likely market value is. In this market, things are moving so quickly. You've got to decide when looking at a property, if there's factors that are red flags that are not worth paying that extra for, or if not, if you need to walk away entirely, a big part of what we do as buyers agents is working out what price to confidently pay, when to walk away, and what are non-negotiables that we can't have when purchasing a property and because we've seen what rents well what sells well and we've seen that in good markets as well as bad markets we don't want to be buying a property with any trade-offs that are going to really hurt us when the market goes down Um, and classic case of one on the weekend is a we inspected a property looking at for a client lots of buyers there and the main shower was about half the width. I wouldn't be able to fit in there. I'd have to go in diagonally, and even then I might be hanging out the, the side. <laughs> and I had a shower screen on it, so you'd be, it's almost been – it'll be the most claustrophobic shower you've ever had. Now, it's crazy that there's still four or five offers going in on that property – it's not a problem that can be solved easily when you've got you know walls built up all, all around that shower. No way that that problem can be solved. It's a single bathroom, so there's no getting using a second shower in the property. And that type of thing is going to really impact a price and it's more of a, a subjective art thing that you need to have experience and know that, hey, this is going to really impact the resale and the rentability and you might be able to find a tenant now for it but when when and if the market goes down you wouldn't want to be owning a property with an attribute that's going to be you know really affect the desirability in that way so hopefully that helps and check out the show notes link to the full episode on how to accurately price a property for a deep dive on all those factors next question hi all i would Would anyone please be able to suggest what percentage of commission does a real estate agent charge in the current market? If they appraise the sale price to be 800K, could they really achieve this price? Well, I wanted to pose this question on the back of the other one because when an agent gives you a price, they should be substantiating it with a comparative market analysis. They should also have a deep familiarity with what's happening in the area, be able to talk you through other properties that they've recently sold and aware of and uh, really look deep at the sold properties and justify that price to you and talk through their strategy for how they're pricing it compared to 
what their appraisal price is. And in this market, our, our we might be pricing it towards the upper to top of end of what we're uh, the actual recent sold data suggesting because the market is so tight. There's not as many sales to guide us. So we might be pushing it on price and it's going to come down to how desirable and tight that market, how desirable that property is and how tight that market is and how quickly stuff is selling as to how much you push it. So if that was an $800,000 unit uh, in you know CBD or something, we wouldn't be pushing that uh, anywhere near as much as a, a family home that's highly desirable in um, you know, a good school area that you look at the average selling time for the area and if it's anything under 21 days, it's going to be a tight market and you, the market can be a lot more forgiving in the price that you ask. So you push things a lot more. And what are they typically charging? So at 800K, agents would probably charge anywhere from 1.8 to 2.5%. And the lower ex, um, end of that would likely be charged by the less experienced agents that you know, don't aren't selling a lot of properties that don't have the depth of experience that they can bring to the table. And, you know, when you're not negotiating that many houses a year, you certainly don't have the skills to be sharp and an agent can just pay for themselves and how well they negotiate, let alone the marketing uh, skills and, and actual, you know, how they put their marketing together can be a big difference. The other thing that I bring to the table other than really sharp skills in both marketing and negotiation is a lot of agents talk about having buyers. And for me, a local agent usually has local buyers. And a local buyer is always looking locally on realestate.com. So they can be found on the portal and, and, you know, that's something that we all have access to as agents. So I wouldn't really place that much value on um, them saying I have a lo local buyer or I have buyers. Where it does make a difference is in someone like myself who has, you know, I've built up a database of many different investors from all around the country. We've got 17 buyers agents that use us for property management and I can send properties out to that uh, group and they're not always necessarily and in most cases they're not all looking in that individual suburb because they're not local buyers but if it stacks up for price and yield and at the moment if, if it ticks the price button mo many buyers agents and buyers over east are just pouncing on anything so that's buyers that i can get exposure to that doesn't cost anything extra when using my service that aren't necessarily going to be looking on realestate.com. So that's a big value add that I can add. And each week I've got buyers from that database making offers on properties that I'm listing. So something else to look for when uh, weighing up value that an agent can add to your sale over and above the marketing, the uh, negotiation skills and the access to buyers. Another factor to consider here would be, you know, how focused on getting you the best price are they with the strategy? So I'm very much focused on presenting a property at its best, making improvements and the smart improvements before we go to market. 
assessing if it's tenanted, whether we sell with the tenants in place, if they're presenting well, or if they're not. Do we look at vacating the tenants and where are we going to be at for the time periods of these things? If we're going to sell tenanted, we I would strategically look to sell two months out from the end of the lease so that we're getting as many buyers, home buyers and investors to look at that property. I'd also have the tenants preferably agree to continue on at the full market rate of rent and I'd include that full market rate of rent in my advert to be more appealing to investors if they bought it. But then if a home buyer bought it, they can easily move, we can give notice to the tenant to vacate. They can move in in that uh, six to eight week settlement period. If the tenant isn't presenting well, we'd look to vacate them. I'd preferably then look to get everything fully presented over and above what we could do if the tenant was there. And then we'd look to use staging. And we had uh, Jody on in one of my last episodes talking about staging and the big difference that that can make. So that's what we do on a lot of our sales. And it all comes into making this effort to present and improve that emotional appeal of the property so that we can get as much as possible for my client, my seller. So a lot more involved than just looking at the percentage of commission, look at what you're getting for what value can the agent add over and above the norm. So next question. As a cup oh I should also mention as far as the percent of commission goes, that it varies depending on the price point. So when you go higher in price, if you're this person's property is at 800 k when you go higher in price, that commission starts to slide down a bit. And when you go lower in price, the commission slides up. So keep that in mind because it's uh, going to be relative depending on the price of your property. Now, next question. As a couple investing, what are the pros and cons of having investment properties in both names? Is there any tax benefits by having one in one partner's name and one in the other? And should I should be interested to know for future purchases? Thanks. So, look, I'm not an accountant and I'm not giving any sort of legal or accounting advice here and you should definitely go and speak to your experts. It's going to be my two cents opinion from what I've seen um, as an investor myself and what I've thought about for my own situation. So it really does come down to getting specific advice. So when you have a property in both names, it means that the income from that property is going to be you know, divided up in line with the percentage of ownership. So if it's in joint names, you're 50-50 you get 50% of the income, your partner gets 50% of the income and you know you also get 50% of the deductions or expenses and they it goes against you that way. And then you, if there's anything remaining, if there's initially the property might be negatively geared as in you're losing money, your expenses exceed your income. So it would be more advantageous when the property's negatively geared to begin with for more of the property to be owned by your by the partner that has the higher income and is on the higher tax bracket because that might you're getting more back in the high, from the higher tax bracket that they're on. And that's why I sometimes see people owning properties with 1% to 
the lower income owner and 99% to the higher income owner in that way. They still are in, you know, still have both their names on the title. They, they're both their incomes go towards the getting the lending, but, you know, they can claim more tax when it's negatively geared. Now, keep in mind that when the property becomes positively geared or positive cash flow, as we spoke about earlier, the 99% to the higher income owner is not a good setup, unfortunately, because that means you're going to pay much more tax because they're at a, on a higher tax bracket. 99% of that income will go to the higher income earner and you'll be paying at a, their full tax bracket at 47 cents in the dollar if that's what they're on. So there's certainly pros and cons. Having that sort of set up is going to mean that you can save more in tax when the property is negatively geared, but you pay more when you move into the positive cash flow phase. And then when you actually come to sell a property, likewise, it's going to depend on when and if you ever sell. So if you never sell, you don't have to worry about considering capital gains tax as well. But if you did sell, if you're both still working and both, you know, the higher income owner, you're going to pay a lot more capital gains tax because 99% is held in their name and and their tax brackets higher. But if you sell when you're both retired, it's 99% of the gains going to go to that one person. So you potentially pay a bit more capital gains tax still, even if that even if both of you aren't working. So really doing that higher ownership is only beneficial at the beginning if the property is highly negatively geared. If the property is neutral or positive or you intend to get it there you know, sooner rather than later, it's probably going to be better to just have it in joint names. And of course, check that out with your proper advisors and see how it fits to, for your exact situation. But that's what I would be thinking about and if I was looking at it for me. So hopefully all of that helps. And and if it's not uh, something that you're going through now, hopefully when you come to this being your situation in the future, you'll think of this episode and have furthered your knowledge on how to deal with it. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you've liked this episode, share it with a family or friend. And I really appreciate a review if you've got uh, two minutes to post one on iTunes or Spotify. Catch you soon. Bye. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group.